whenever you're ready. Good afternoon. It is now 1.05 p.m. and my name is Bavette Brackett and this is the regular meeting of the Commission on Community Investment and Infrastructure for Tuesday, October 3rd, 2023. Um, I'd like to welcome everyone joining us today in the audience as well as those who may be um, joining us in hybrid format on the phone. Um, members of the public can participate and provide comments both in person and at City Hall and remotely through our WebEx system. Thank you to our staff, our guests, and everyone else who will be participating in today's meeting. Um, Madam Secretary, please call the first item. Thank you, Madam Chair. The first order of business is item one, roll call. Commission members, please respond when I call your name. Commissioner Aquino. Present. Commissioner Drew. Present. Commissioner Scott. Present. And Chair Brackett. Aye. All members of the commissioner are present. Madam Chair, we have a quorum. Please note that the commission has one vacancy. The next order of business is item two, announcements. A, the next regular meeting is scheduled on Tuesday, October 17th, 2023 at 1 p.m. B, announcement of prohibition of sound producing electronic devices during the meeting. Please be advised that the ringing of and use of cell phones, pagers, and similar sound producing electronic devices are prohibited at this meeting. Please be advised that the chair may order the removal from the meeting room of any persons responsible for the ringing of or use of a cell phone, pager, or, either, or, or other similar sound producing electronic device. C, announcement of public comment procedures. Please be advised a member of the public has up to three minutes to make pertinent public comments on each agenda item unless the commission adopts a shorter period on any item. During each public comment period, members of the public attending the meeting in person will have an opportunity to provide their comments. It is strongly recommended that members of the public who wish to address the commission fill out a speaker card and submit the completed card to the commission secretary. Members of the public who are joining remotely will be instructed to dial 415-655-0001. When prompted, enter the access code, which is 2660. 3088590 press the pound sign followed by the pound sign again to enter the call when prompted press star then 3 to submit your request to speak when you dial star 3 you will hear the following message you have raised your hand to ask a question please wait to speak until the host calls on you when you hear your line has been unmuted this is your opportunity to provide your public comment and you will have 3 minutes Please speak clearly and slowly, and you will be placed back on mute once you are done speaking. You can stay on the line and continue to listen to the meeting, but you can also choose to hang up. If you are planning to provide a public comment on any items on today's agenda, it is recommended that you call the public comment line ahead of time to allow you to listen to the meeting live and to prevent you from experiencing delays. Today's meeting materials are available on our website at sfocii.org under Commission then Public Meetings tab. The next order of business is item three, report on actions taken at a previous closed session meeting, if any. There are no reportable actions. The next order of business is item four, matters of unfinished business. There are no matters of unfinished business. Next order of business is item five, matters of new business consisting of consent and regular agenda. First is the consent agenda. 5A is approval of minutes, regular meeting of September 5th, 2023. 
5B is authorizing a third amendment to the personal services contract with Forster and Kroger Landscape Maintenance, Inc., a California corporation, to extend the contract term by up to three months and increase the total expenditure authority by $34,036 for a total overall contract ex expenditure authority of up to $605,140 to provide continued landscape maintenance services in community facilities district number one in South Beach with funding provided by special taxes levied under the Melrose Community Facilities Act, former Rincon Point South Beach Redevelopment Project Area. Action. Resolution number 29-2023. Madam Chair. Madam Secretary, do we have anyone from the public who wishes to provide public comment? At this time, if there are members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item, please call 415-655-0001, enter access code 2660-308-8590, followed by the pound sign, then the pound sign again to enter the call. Please press star, then three, to be placed in the queue. An automated voice will let you know when it is your turn. We'd like to first invite people who have um, participated here in person. If you'd like to provide public comment on any of these consent items, please come up to the podium at this time. If there are members of the public who joined us by phone, please um, press star three on your mobile phones to get in the queue. Madam Chair, it does not appear we have any members of the public wishing to comment on the consent items. Hearing no further requests to speak on this item, I'm gonna close public comment and move it over to my fellow commissioners to see if you have any questions, comments, or would like to make a motion on this item. Uh, I'd like to make a motion to approve the consent agenda consisting of items uh, 5A and B. I second that notice. Madam Secretary, can you please take roll? Commission members, please announce your vote when I call your name. Commissioner Aquino. Yes. Commissioner Drew. Aye. Vice Chair Scott. Aye. And Chair Brackett. Aye. Madam Chair, the vote is four ayes. Madam Secretary, can you please call the next item, please? Next is the regular agenda, item 5C, authorizing an amended and restated personal services contract with CMG Landscape Architecture, a California corporation, to increase the contract amount by $4,910,056 for a total not to exceed amount of $8,528,561 to close out completed scopes from the original contract and provide design, engineering, permitting and construction administration services for the under ramp park project and providing notice that this action is within the scope of the Trans Bay Terminal Caltrain Downtown Extension Redevelopment Project Final Environmental Impact Statement Environmental Impact Report and the Final Environmental Impact Report Transit Center District Plan and Transit Tower both program EIRs and is adequately described in these EIRs for purposes of the California Environmental Quality Act, Trans Bay Redevelopment Project Area, Discussion and Action, Resolution Number 30-2023. Director Koslovsky. Thank you, Madam Secretary, Commissioners, members of the public. Um, this item is authorizing an amendment to a contract with CMG 
landscape architect from 2011. The contract has evolved um, to respond to the evolving project needs of the various park and infrastructure projects in Trans Bay. Uh, the contract increase of $4.9 million made up of both new money plus reusing um, unused money that's in the contract. And to present the details of that, are in the history of the contract is uh, Mr. Benjamin Brandon, OCAI's project manager for Trans Bay. Ben. Thank you for the introduction, Executive Director Kozlowski. Good afternoon, Chair Brackett, commissioners and commissioners. Uh, once again, I'm Ben Brandon, the Trans Bay Project Manager, and I'll be presenting for your consideration the update of OCII's design contract uh, with CMG Landscape Architecture for the firm's continued work on the Underrent Park project. Specifically, staff is requesting the Commission's authorization of an amended and restated contract with CMG Landscape Architecture to increase funding by $4.9 million, establishing a not to exceed total contract value of just over $8.5 million. The amended contract will close out the completed infrastructure scopes from the original CMG design contract, and the additional money and updated uh, under ramp park scope will enable CMG and its subconsultants to complete the design, engineering, and construction administration for the project. Before you now is a map of the 40-acre Transbay uh, redevelopment project area, which is split into two zones. OCII oversees the 10 acres that comprise zone one of the project area, the boundaries of which are highlighted by the dashed red line on the map. Zone two falls under the planning department's jurisdiction, and the approximately 2.5-acre under-ramp park circled here in yellow straddles both of the project areas. The park is located on land owned by Caltrans and the Trans Bay Joint Powers Authority, or, T or TJPA, beneath the Fremont Street off-ramp and the TJPA's bus ramp connection to the new Salesforce Transit Center. It has been designed to serve Trans Bay residents, local office workers, and visitors. Under Ramp Park includes a wide range of program elements, including a large dog park, informal play areas, walking and biking paths, sports courts, community space, and the concession and Folsom Pavilion buildings, which will offer casual dining and drinking. The commission approved the park schematic design this past June, and the approval of this amended and restated contract will allow CMG, the CMG-led design team to move the project into the design development phase. Here we have a bird's eye view of the park, and I'll just highlight the locations of some of the notable program uh, elements that I just mentioned. Item number 12 at the bottom of the screen is the multi-sports courts. Moving northward across Folsom Street, item number 11 is the Folsom Pavilion Building, which is designed to feature up to three food kiosks. Item number eight further to the left identifies the bicycle and pedestrian paths that run the entire length of the park's western edge. Item number seven above to the right is the location of the dog park, and to its left you'll see item number four, which is the concession, open the concession garden open seating area, which is next to the concession building. Here we have a perspective view looking uh, into the lower story of the Folsom Pavilion in the lawn area. And this is a view of the concession seating area under the oculus, which is the circular opening uh, of the TJPA bus ramp turnaround. In the background, you can see the concession building, which incorporates the Art Deco structure 
which was previously located on Transbay Block 5 prior to the development of that site. OCII's work uh, on Underramp Park dates back to 2011, when the former redevelopment agency entered into the original design contract with CMG, which covered design uh, and construction support for the Folsom Street Improvement Project and Underramp Park and Essex Street schematic designs. In 2013, the commission approved the schematic design for Folsom Street and the concept design for Underramp Park. A year later, in 2014, CMG submitted a completed Underramp Park schematic design to staff, but soon after, the project was placed on a three-year hold while OCII negotiated some key project provisions with Caltrans for use of its property within the park site. During the time of these negotiations with Caltrans, that agency reviewed the park's draft schematic design and identified some specific changes that were needed. By 2017, OCII and Caltrans had agreed to terms of a lease of its parcel, enabling us to direct CMG and the design team to begin a new under-ramp park concept and schematic designs. Then in 2018, CMG finalized and submitted to staff a revised schematic design for the park when the project hit yet another delay. That September of 2018, just as staff was readying uh, the underramp park schematic design for approval uh, by the commission and the TJPA board, the TJPA discovered fissures in the newly opened Salesforce Transit Center. The TJPA informed OCII that it could not prioritize the underramp park project and requested that staff and the design team suspend work on the project. Two and a half years passed before, in early 2021, the TJPA approved work on Underramp Park to resume. And OCII directed CMG to update the 2018 schematic design by incorporating an Art Deco pavilion structure into the project. In late 2022, CMG submitted, an up, submitted the updated schematic design for the park to OCII, the TJPA, and Caltrans for review. And the Commission and TJPA Board both approved the park schematic design this past June. The design team includes CMG and six sub-consultants. The other primary consultants are Arup, our engineering firm, and YA Studio, architect of the two new buildings within the park. Of the, seven, of the seven firms comprising the team, YA Studio and Martin Ron and, and, Martin Ron and Associates, our surveyor, are both small business enterprises. CMG was previously a small business enterprise but graduated out of the program in 2015. As mentioned earlier, in 2011, OCII entered into the nearly $2.5 million original design contract with CMG to lead the design of the Folsom Streetscape, Underramp Park, and Essex Street improvements. Since then, the original contract has been amended four times to expand the scopes of the Folsom Street and Underramp Park projects beyond what was covered in the original contract. The four amendments have added an additional $3.5 million to the contract. The fourth amendment was the most substantial monetary increase, adding $1.55 million, $1 million. That amendment was also specific to Underramp Park in that it added new scope for Caltrans's required changes to the project schematic design, and it, it, and it, it expanded the design and development uh, and construction documents phases uh, due to the increased sizes and complexity of the park's two buildings. 
However, much of this additional scope and money was never drawn upon due to the project being placed on hold between 2018 and 2021. This proposed updated and amended design contract is again ERP specific. The restated contract closes out the Folsom Streetscape and Essex Hillside projects entirely, leaving only Underrent Park as the lone active project. The key scope additions include repricing the remaining ERP scope items from the Fourth Amendment in 2023 dollars, new required Caltrans and TJPA safety and engineering studies, as well as additional design review by each of, uh, by each of those um, agencies, expansions of the design development and construction documents phases uh, due to more complex designs of the concession and Folsom Pavilion buildings. The amended contract will also add permitting coordination um, that the subconsultants and CMG will perform, construction administration services, which were neither covered by the original contract nor any of its previous amendments, signage design work, additional meeting coordination with the park's future operator, which is the East Cut CBD, and finally, an 11% design contingency. The original contract, as amended, totals just under $6 million. But of that amount, $2.35 million remains unspent. About $2.6 million in new funding scope is being added through this proposed amendment. The updated scope for CMG and its subconsultants to complete the underrent park project is $4.9 million. And this is the total amount that will be drawn down through the completion of construction. Since this is an amended and restated design contract, when the $4.9 million increase is added to the $3.6 million that has been spent to date under the original contract and the previous amendments, we arrive at a new total contract value of nearly $8.5 million. The original contract, including its previous four amendments, achieved a maximum of 27% small business enterprise participation. And the new amended contract is projected to achieve 24% SBE participation. While these percentages fall short of OCII's 50% goal for our contracts, the numbers do not tell the whole story. CMG was an SBE firm until 2015, after which the company graduated from the program. Therefore, CMGs for service between 2011 and 2015 count towards SBE participation. CMGs post-2015 fees for service, as well as their scope within this updated and amended ERP design contract, are not counted towards S or as SBE dollars. If CMG was still an SBE, the SBE participation percent would be 62% for the contract. Still, CMG has been committed to bringing on SBE partners whenever new scope, a new scope consultant was needed. YA Studio, a San Francisco-based minority-owned business, is one such example. When the Underrent Park project was expanded to include buildings, there was a need for an architect. CMG looked to the SBE pool of architects and then hired YA Studio. Additionally, over the last eight years, both CMG and YA Studios have participated in OCII's professional trainee program for architectural and engineering students. Between the two firms, they have trained seven local architectural students from City College and San Francisco State University. 
With the approval of this contract amendment, CMG is targeting early 2025 to complete under rent parks construction documents. And at that time, OCII would pursue the bond issuance to fund the project's construction. The park will be constructed over a two year period and we anticipate it being completed by late 2027 or early 2028. With me today in the audience are representatives from CMG, YA Studio, and Arup. This brings me to the end of my presentation and following public comments, I'm happy to address any of the commission's comments or questions. Thank you very much. Madam Chair, can you please call for public comments? At this time, if there are any members of the public who wishes to provide public comment on this item, please call 415-655-0001, enter access code 2660-308-8590, followed by the pound sign and the pound sign again to enter the call, then press star then three to be placed in the queue. If you're already listening to us by phone, please press star three if you'd like to provide public comment. We'd like to begin public comment by inviting anyone here in person to come up to the podium at this time. And again, for members of the public who joined us by phone, if you can pl please press star then three on your mobile devices if you would like to provide public comment. Madam Chair, it does not appear we have any members of the public wishing to comment on this item. Seeing no further comments for, um, from the public, we are now gonna close public comment and I'm gonna um, pass it over to my fellow commissioners for any comments or suggestions. I would like to just uh, thank Benjamin uh, for your presentation and uh, just a uh, great job, and I am in support of it, yes. Good afternoon, and thank you for that presentation. Um, that's 12 years in the making, or probably more than that in the back behind the scenes. Um, so congratulations um, on getting to this point. Um, I think the schematic designs look great. Um, they're amazing. I kept looking at it and, and just excited to see that area bring life and light and, and um, memories, right? Because people are going to spend time there. Um, other than that, I just want to also acknowledge that I do enjoy hearing that you involve um, students from the city, uh, community college. Uh, just, I think that's... Um, I appreciate that just because you're in, engaging with the future of our, the future city movers and shakers. So uh, thank you so much. I just wanna say I think that that's a testament to our design team and I think we really need to credit CMG and YA in particular for their commitment to that. Yes, thank you. I meant to bring them, I wrote it down and I was just you know going off here, but thank you for bringing their, their names as well, thank you. 
Uh, thanks. I'd like to echo the um, comments of my fellow commissioners. Uh, really excited that we're moving uh, into the next uh, phase of these these projects and hopefully uh, delivering a, a beautiful new uh, space uh, for the Trans Bay uh, neighborhood uh, in 2027 or 28. Uh, I also want to uh, appreciate that this is a really complex project with the engagement of uh, Caltrans uh, and TJPA. Uh, I, I was just hoping you could speak to, I believe TJPA approved the schematic designs, uh, but got nervous when I saw that they uh, kind of had future design approvals uh, that would be forthcoming. Could you just speak to kind of their role uh, moving forward uh, in the project and how we're all uh, working together and aligned to, to deliver this. Absolutely. So thank you for the question. And one thing I want to mention is um, the additional re review and oversight by both the TJPA and Caltrans is actually built into this contract increase. So some of the additional complexity of CMG and the design team having to respond to Caltrans and TJPA's comments is what's being added in terms of scope and money. But to answer your more specific question, where, where do they fall um, in the review period, you're correct that both, well, the TJPA, because they are the primary landowner, took action to approve the schematic design alongside our commission. So we acted, you all acted first, um, and then they approved the schematic design following us. Caltrans still has a role, obviously, because they own the dog leg portion or the dog park parcel of the project. Um, and because of this, because both because the park is being built under both of their infrastructure ramps, that's considered critical, critical transportation infrastructure. Um, it requires certain protections, number one, and also comes with certain limitations as to what the design team could attach or affix to those ramps. And so as we move into the design development phase and then further on into construction documents, they do get to review at set points both of those agencies to ensure that the design fully complies with all of their requirements. In the case of Caltrans, they actually um, have us do, the, the design team and the engineering team in, in particular, has to perform what's called a fatal flaw analysis to ensure um, that the, the, essentially the soil that we are cutting away from the uprights that support the ramp will never in any way um, jeopardize them in the event of an earthquake or so forth. So it's just giving them proper oversights from their engineering teams to ensure that the park design is conform in conformance with their requirements. Um, but I do want to say that Caltrans and uh, the TJPA have been supportive of the project. Great. Thank you for, for laying all that out. I just want to thank the entire team for all of their work um, on this project, um, especially you, Ben, as well as George, Maria, and um, Elizabeth, and other staff members who have been part of all of this together, including um, getting CMG through our initial program years ago and um, graduating through that and becoming now um, no longer an SBE, but <laughs> being able to also give back in other ways in terms of um, I was able to go to the graduation for some of the interns and just seeing the excitement on their faces as well as the excitement on you know, some of the local residents' faces when you guys kind of unveiled some of these plans to the community. And I know there's a lot of excitement around, you know, all the different components that are coming in as well as some, a little bit of um, scariness about the sound, <laughs> which I know is probably gonna come up again as we push this project forward. But um, just wanted to thank everyone for their work and their hard diligence on this project to pencil this out and make this work. Um, within our budget constraints. So 
Um, if any of my commissioners have a motion on the floor. Madam Chair, I move that we authorize an amended and restated personal services contract with uh, CMG Landscape Architecture, a California corporation, to increase the contract amount by $4,910,056 for a total not to exceed the amount of eight million five hundred twenty-eight thousand five hundred sixty-one to close out completed scopes from the original contract and provide design resolution number thirty dash twenty twenty-three. I second. Madam Secretary, can you please call for the vote? Commission members, please announce your vote for item 5C when I call your name. Commissioner Aquino. Yes. Commissioner Drew. Aye. Vice Chair Scott. Aye. Chair Brackett. Aye. Madam Chair, the vote is four ayes. The motion carries. Madam Secretary, please call the next item. Next is agenda item number 5D, workshop on the July 2022 through June 2023 report on OCII small business enterprise and local hiring goals practices. Discussion. Director Koslovsky. Thank you, Madam Secretary, commissioners, members of the public, once again, we're here for the annual small business enterprise and workforce uh, report. Um, this, this also touches on the trainee program, uh, which you heard a little bit about under the CMG architecture uh, contract approval. And the period that we're covering is fiscal year 22-23, which is June 22 to July 2023. And to make this presentation is Maria Paco, the Senior Contract Compliance Specialist at OCAI. Maria? Hello, I'm just opening up the file, but thank you. Thank you. Um, good afternoon, um, Chair Brackett, Executive Director Kloskowski, um, Commissioners, and General Counsel Morales. Um, I'm Maria Pacom, a Senior Contract Compliance Specialist with the Office of Community Investment and Infrastructure. And today I will be presenting the annual status report on small business enterprise and workforce programs for fiscal year 2022 to 2023, um, representing the periods from July 1st 2020 through, 2022 through June 30th, 2023. Um, I'm going to start with our SBE program. So um, OCI's SBE program establishes a 50% SBE participation goal for all contracts under OCI's jurisdiction. First consideration, um, the program establishes, um, has a concept called first consideration, which basically means that first considerations um, for contracts be given to project area SVEs in 94124, 94134, and 94107 zip codes, um, followed by San Francisco SVEs, followed by all other SVEs um, who meet our program requirements, which I'll discuss later. Um, the, the program also requires that developers and contracts on OCI projects make good faith efforts to meet the 50% per 
participation goal. Um, good faith efforts include breaking apart scopes of work and unbundling contracts to create additional opportunities, encouraging teaming and partnership arrangements between large and small, large and small firms in accordance with our JV association program, um, and conducting pre-bid meetings for all scopes of work that are put out to bid. Um, I'm going to go over the definition um, of what we consider an SBE over our program. There are several criteria. Um, the first is um, in order to be considered an SBE, um, the small business must um, be led by someone who has ownership and control, um, who is not affiliated with a larger firm. Um, where required, the business must also hold the appropriate licenses that are consistent with the scope of work that they are seeking a contract for. Um, and lastly, gross revenues average over the last five years must meet the size standards um, for small businesses as established by the city and county of San Francisco. In March of 2022, OCI conformed to the city and county of San Francisco size standards through commission action. Um, and if you look at the chart, you can see um, the different size standards for the different business types. Um, a last point is that we don't certify SBEs in-house. However, we do accept certifications from state, federal, and other jurisdictions so long as the business meets the standards set under our program. Um, so the focus of this summary will be projects and contracts that, contracts that were reviewed and approved by the commission or awarded by developers and their contractors for the fiscal year 2022-2023. Um, the data that we used was synthesized using contract award information gathered from developers, contractors, as well as information from OCI's web-based reporting tool, LCP Tracker. During, during this reporting period, there were four active projects. They were all affordable housing projects um, under OCI's jurisdiction, and con the contracting activity was valued at $161.5 million for design and construction services. Um, the contracts include Trans Bay Block 2 East and West, um, affordable housing development, as well as Hunter Point Shipyard Block 56, um, and Hunter's Point Shipyard Block 52 and 54, which are also all affordable housing developments, as mentioned. Um, when you're look, looking at the, um, sorry, the next slide. Um, looking at the SBE, Great, sorry about that. Um, so looking at the SB participation for those projects, um, the overall um, SB percentage achieved was 50.3%. Um, so when we break that down to professional service and constructions, professional services far exceeded that goal at 90.7%. Meanwhile, construction was at 48.2%, which was just shy of the 50% SBE goal. So for the next slide, um, we're going to look at contracting activity for the last um, seven years to give a visual comparison um, of the years and looking specifically at um, professional services um, as well as construction activity. So looking back, when you look back from fiscal year 17, 18 through um, 18, 19, we saw a decline um, in SB percentages for both professional services and construction contracts due to the prevalence of type one tower construction during that time. Um, High-rise towers, uh, high towers requiring type one construction typically involve larger scopes of work when compared to non-tower developments. This results in bid packages that are beyond the capacity of many SBE firms due to their size, 
which affects overall SB outcomes even when mitigating measures such as SB set-asides and JV arrangements are incorporated. In fiscal year 19 through 20, the completion of type one projects, after the completion of type one projects, um, we saw an increase in SB percentages. But then within that interim period from then till now, um, there were some additional setbacks due to the impact that COVID-19 had on the construction industry. Um, during the last fiscal year, 22 to 2023, OCI and its construction partners took measures to mitigate the impact that COVID-19 had on the small business community. Additionally, there were no large high-rise towers um, under construction during that time. Um, and all contracts were awarded exclusive, exclusively to affordable housing developments. Um, and as you can see from the trend lines, um, you know, that helps with um, the, the ability of small firms to participate on these contracts. Um, at the request of commission, OCI staff also gathers minority and women ownership data um, on SB firms participating in OCI-assisted contracts. When analyzing the awarded contracts by ethnic and gender identity over the fiscal year 2022-2023, 81.9% of professional services contracts were awarded to women and minority-owned SBEs. Meanwhile, approximately 36.3% of construction and supply contracts were awarded to women and minority-owned SBEs. These figures amount to $62.4 million, or 38.6% of total contracts being awarded to women and minority small firms over the 12-month reporting period. In furtherance of SBE goals, OCI staff continues to co conduct outreach to the local small business community through various publications and media outlets, including OCI's website, as well as the city's contracting procurement website. Additionally, staff regularly attend pre-bid meetings and pre-proposal meetings for all procurement activities. Lastly, contract compliance staff maintains continued dialogue with SBE owners and various associations, such as the National Association of Minority Contractors, Clark Construction Business Management and Strategic Partnership Program, Bayview Renaissance Entrepreneurship Center, um, as well as Taishi Business Solutions, which is the administrator of the Contractor Assistance Program, or CAP, um, in the Hunters Point shipyard area. So moving along to workforce, OCI's local workforce program is aggressive and unique in that it establishes a local hiring goal of 50% with first consideration for project area residents and requires contractors to adhere to state prevailing wage requirements even on projects entirely funded with private dollars. OCI monitors workforce compliance through a web-based monitoring and reporting system, LCP Tracker, and contractors and subcontractors are required to submit certified payroll reports through this system. In addition, OCI has an agreement with the Office of Economic and Workforce Development through their city build department to provide worker referrals and day-to-day -day construction workforce compliance services. City build services offered include mandatory workforce kickoff meetings with developers and general contractors, um, leading pre-construction meetings with each subcontractor prior to the start of work, managing local worker requests and referral and the referral hiring process, and the preparation of workforce compliance reports were reviewed by OCI staff, contractors, and developments. OCI staff also meets monthly with City Bill to discuss and assess the progress of OCI's workforce programs, including progress 
on the hiring of Bayview Hunters Point residents. Um, so this chart displays um, total workforce hours and corresponding workforce percentages for the last four reporting periods from fiscal year 19 through 20 up to our current um, fiscal year that we're reporting 22 to 23. The COVID-19 pandemic adversely affected workforce activity starting in March 2020, um, as you can see from the reduction of total workforce hours and continuing throughout fiscal year 2021 and fiscal year 2022. Um, we had some recovery in fiscal year 2023. Um, and if you look at the numbers, you can see while the pandemic adversely affected construction activity and total workforce hours, we did see an increase um, in the rate of local workforce hours on OCI projects from fiscal year 1920 through fiscal year 21, 2022, indicating that even though um, COVID-19 slowed the um, so the total construction activity, SF workers were being utilized at a greater rate than non-SF workers on OCI projects during this time. In the 2022-2023 calendar year, projects achieved 22.9 local workforce participation goal, which was slightly down from 26% in the previous fiscal year. In an effort to increase the pipeline of qualified San Francisco workers, CityBuild continues to expand their academy to increase the availability of local workers in the trades, including those with significant barriers to employment. In fiscal year 2022-2023, CityBuild efforts included working closely with, San with the San Francisco Unified School District, private industry, and community-based organizations for outreach and recruitment. CityBuild also completed several academy cycles, including the completion of cycle 37 and 38, which achieved 30, 77 graduates, with 67 of those graduates um, being hired locally, um, which equates to an 87% placement rate. CityBuild also conducted two specialized training cohorts at India Basin, um, which resulted in 16 pre-apprenticeship graduates and 10 placements, which equates to 63% placement rate. Lastly, CityBuild completed cycles 26 and 27 of the Construction Administrative and Professional Services Academy, or CAPSA, um, which resulted in 26 graduates qualified for opportunities in construction administration and construction management. The last program that I'd like to discuss is OCI's Architecture and Engineering Training Program. Um, in August of 2023, OCI completed the eighth cycle of this program which matches local students with career training opportunities at design firms on OCI projects. The program was established in 2016 in collaboration with the Office of Economic and Workforce Development and Japanese Community Youth Council and falls under the Mayor's Opportunities for All Youth Workforce Initiative. Since the program's inception, staff has, have successfully forged relationships with faculty and student groups at City College of San Francisco, San Francisco State, um, several other local schools and the local design community in order to strengthen the program's pipeline. To date, the program has created 79 student positions across 41 firms acting as a crucial pipeline for San Francisco students seeking careers in design and development. In 2023, the program achieved 11 placements over 10 firms representing opportunities in architecture, engineering, 
and construction management. Um, and that sums up my portion of this report. Um, I'm now going to introduce Ken Nim, Director of City Build, who's going to offer um, some more words on the workforce portion. Thank you. Good afternoon, Commissioners, Chair Brackett, Commissioner Scott, Commissioner Drew, it's a pleasure and honor to see you, and Commissioner Aquino, of course, Director Kowalski, and General Counsel Morales. It's definitely a privilege and honor for me to be here this afternoon, and actually, uh, this is one of my last official activities before I took paternity leave, hence you saw me walking in with a baby stroller. Right? Before I do that, I do want to take this honor to come up and say thank you. Right, this is one of my favorite commissions. Hopefully, it doesn't go on record, <laughs> but you are because uh, without OCII, without the staff, with George and Maria and all the staff and the director Thor, right, all working behind the scenes, there wouldn't be City Build. Right, City Build we started back in 2006, uh, thanks to former mayor now Governor Newsom, right, and uh, through the development, OCII have always been the stable, the constant in the community, right, with the redevelopment, former redevelopment agency, with all the workforce programs, the um, uh, other uh, SBE, LBE programs, right? Without that effort, the city would not have taken those, what we learned from OCII, to enhance what we're doing, again, here at CityBuild with the Office of Economic Workforce Development. We have a mandatory local hire, right? And that mandatory local hiring policy, right, was uh, lessons learned from the OCII hiring workforce committees, right? Uh, and those lessons, right, were very valuable. And have you seen uh, some of the impacts, right? Um, so OCII has specific projects. Now the local hire expands all city uh, funded projects. And one of that critical lesson was to create a mandatory hire for city funded public contracts. So uh, here today, I always want to say thanks, right? And uh, we're looking ahead, right? That the exciting thing is uh, there's still challenges of economic recovery from the pandemic, right? So hence, you saw the numbers and the decline in work hours, right? And that is still a challenge in the industry itself, right? Downtown, as you've seen, is still recovering from some of the challenges with our vacant office spaces, right? So without people coming into the office, there's no uh, tenant improvement. There's no things are not breaking as normal, right? So the construction worker is as not needed as much. Right, so those are one of the challenges that we see, and especially the impact. If there's not much work going on, it's going work. Uh, the workers will have to go somewhere, right? And then the contractors, uh, if there's not enough work, they have to figure out where the work is. Sometimes it might not be in San Francisco, so you'll see some growth in the regional, but maybe the San Francisco is not coming as fast as other places. So those are some of the things that we see and why there's impact in the performance of CII. But even with that, right, uh, there's still. Uh, reliability of our staff, our team working together to get local residents. And the priority, especially in the D10 area, right, Southeast sector, is to get those residents to work, get those residents to city build, to train, and get referred out for these good paying union jobs in apprenticeship uh, programs. And one of the things we're going to be coming out uh, in uh, end of November, right, so uh, there's going to be a release of a report from Cornell University that came out to study city build, and one of the highlights is the lessons that we learned from OCII. So when that report comes out, we're gonna flag it for the staff, and the staff will send it to the commissioners, and it's a national publication, so it's lessons learned uh, from uh, what we're doing in San Francisco, which other cities are gonna learn, and uh, through my uh, presentations across the country, when people ask about city build, I always highlight OCII as the department, right, as the program that anyone trying to do a workforce program, 
should look at as a model. So with that, I want to pause for any questions uh, uh, from the report. <laughs> oh, I'll hand it back to Maria. Um, so yeah, that concludes our report. Um, so uh, George Ken and myself, George Bridges Contract Compliance Supervisor Ken and myself will be available to um, answer any questions that you all may have. Thank you. Thank you for that report, um, Maria and Ken. Um, you, sorry. <laughs> Madam Secretary, can you please um, call for public comment? Thank you, Madam Chair. At this time, if there are any members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item, please call 415-655-0001, enter access code 2660-308-8590, press the pound sign, then the pound sign again to enter the call, then press star, then three to be placed in the queue. If you're already listening to us by phone and would like to provide public comment, please press star three to be placed in the queue. And would like to begin with um, members of the public who are here in person to come up to the podium. Mr. James. Good afternoon, commissioners. My name is Oscar James. I'm a native Bayview Hunters Point resident. And my district goes all the way down from District 10 all the way down to the Lefty O'Doul Bridge which they try to cut us off, but that's still our area. It always has been and always will be. But one thing I want to give dittos to the, the workforce uh, project. They have done a tremendous job. Uh, I like the thing, the idea of them bringing on A. Philip Randolph, which is one of our new institute in the community and getting people's training and what have you. But one of the problems I do have one of the first programs that started was young community developers in training and what have you. We started that back in the 70s with the Model Cities program, which I was a commissioner at that time, and I do not see them nowhere on this list. And I have mm. problems with that. When you don't put the young community developers in something, I have a problem with that. We were the first training programs. Uh, prior to that, we had Manpower, which Mr. Joe Day since passed, who brought the unions into Baby Hunters Point in, in a District 10 at that particular time. It wasn't District 10, but that whole area. Uh, so I do want them to get the recognition that they deserve. The other problem I have is everybody scapegoat around the electricals. You know, I like the idea of them having architects and what have you, but the, the electricals, uh, uh, electricians, I have a problem with that. Uh, they're one of the most to me, laziest unions, because they don't do that much. They sit around and wait for everybody else to do something, they just string some wires. But we need our peoples on there. We need people from District 10, uh, African-American communities, and, and uh, other uh, races to be in that union. And I really have a problem when you come up and you talk about all these other unions and what have you, and you don't talk about the, operate, um, the uh, electricians. So with that, uh, city build, get on them, because I'm going to be on you. Thank you very much. And I'd like to call the next card, uh, Abdulli. Hi. I guess I have to, I can move this up. Good afternoon. My name is Abdulli Jallo. I am a educator at JCYC STEM coordinator where I do workforce development and I was also a past 
OCII participant in 2021. So I just kind of want to just give a little bit of insight what it was like to work as an OCII participant from our point of view. And I had the liberty of um, interning at Plural Studio, which gave me the exposure to the landscape architecture practice, which is drastically different from the study. I am currently a student at City College, where I study architecture, graphic design, and digital illustration. So I am doing a lot of different kind of design things. And just what you're going through in the school is completely different than what you're going to be exposed to in the real world. Like, we're not necessarily always going to be talking about budget and even just talking about coming into City Hall to ask for. Um, support on projects, so just like that exposure is incredibly important before, for somebody who might not be um, used to it to, before they get into the industry. Um, not to mention that the OCII program did give me two pillars of support from the firm. Like I'm still connected to the designers and architects at um, Plural Studio and from JCYC, um, where I was able to have weekly career development to prepare myself through like portfolio, resume, um, and communication skills within this industry. Um, and the competitive pay was really important for me during this time for like an internship just because um, I had to take some time off of work to see if this was something that was really for me. And usually for somebody like me or any other like black or brown individuals or just people who are under resourced, they might not, it might not be as easy for them to take the leap of faith to do a transition into a different industry. Um, the design industry is not an easy industry to break into, especially for internships, especially somebody who might be going to City College. We're not gonna be matched up against maybe people who are coming from bigger universities. Um, I did decline my admissions to um, Berkeley's master's program and CCA's master's program just because I knew that I would not have the resources to be able to go into those programs and survive in the real world. So I had to decline my um, admissions just because I didn't think it would be the safest bet for me. Um, and just because I'm deciding to stay at City College, just like as much like hundreds and thousands of other students, it doesn't mean that I am less or anyone else is less deserving or less qualified to be able to get into these positions, to be able to um, provide their services within the internships and um, yeah, develop. And it levels the playing field a lot for us, just because, again, like maybe you don't have the resources or the training or like just the stature or the like name behind you to get into these um, firms or into these internships. Um, yeah, and just I just wanted to highlight that, like you know, usually sometimes all people need is a chance and somebody to believe them and the support to go behind that in order to know that they can um, be competitive in this industry, and that is what OCII provides for their program participants. Thank you. Thank you. Can I get the next speaker, please? Good morning. My name is Don Bradstreet, and I am a JCYC graduate uh, internship I'm a city college. Um, I'm taking associates right now in city college. I also attend city built, so I'm a five years experienced cement mason. And what this program has done for me was a plea. It was amazing. They actually um, JCYC linked me in with a amazing program with workshops, understanding individuals, taking time out, understanding myself, being comfortable in the room. And they also hooked me up with a really amazing job. 
which I am working safety security right now. I wanted to talk about City Built, the program that they do have. You guys are super amazing. Um, if it wasn't for a City Built, I wouldn't be into the internship I'm at now. Um, it was a good experience. They paid for my tools, my membership for the union. I got training did. And then on top of that, I end up going to, yeah, this is, okay, now I can <laughs> feel like it was just like <laughs> taking over. But um, I definitely want to make sure that I do want to give out the big props to um, JCYC for taking that consideration and taking that one-on-one -on -one step in when I did step into the internship. When I walked into the internship, it was a um, career fair that they had at City College. And when I walked in, I met Maria with a smile. And she welcomed me in, and Maria was a, the reason why I stepped into BGI. She told um, one of the VPs that I have a perfect match for you. And from there, it was on. I've been doing nonstop work with BGI, safety security, safety coordination, sorry, safety coordination, and been going beast mode ever since. It's an amazing program. I'm very honored to be a part of BGI. Very, I'm a, I'm a very proud individual to be a part of JCYC, OCII, City Build, San Francisco, caps off. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank yeah. you. Any questions? You're good. No. <laughs> Very good. Thank you. If we have any other speakers who are here in person, please come up. Good afternoon. Yaku Askew, principal with YA Studio. So uh, not only was am I a San Francisco native, but I've also gotten to participate both in projects like Underground Park as a small business owner. Uh, but also participate in the intern training program, which I think we've participated in since 2016, 2017, around there. So we've had quite a few interns come over, come through our studio, um, and it's been an incredible opportunity, uh, both for us and also, I think, for those interns, some of which continue on into design fields, some of which decide this maybe isn't the right field. Um, both are, you know, wonderful, uh, you know, conclusions to come from, but I, I think this program is such an incredible thing. Um, you know, being a San Francisco native, seeing the individuals that it serves, we see a lot of resumes on our desk where these people have all the doors open in front of them. Um, but this program really, I think, excels at providing opportunities for those that don't get a lot of opportunities. And, you know, I think this program, you've heard from some great speakers earlier today that are really great examples of what this program can do. So I, you know, hats off to all the people we've worked with over the years in terms of placing them, um, and I couldn't say enough great things about it. The only thing I would love to see more is this extend out to the high schools, uh, because I think exposure into the AEC uh, industries earlier uh, could only strengthen the pipeline uh, in the Bay Area and provide more incredible opportunities. So thank you. Thank you. Are there any other speakers who are here in person? And for any members who joined us by phone, if you'd like to provide public comment, again, please press star three on your mobile devices. Madam Chair, it does not appear we have any other members of the public commenting no. on this item. Sorry. Um, additional members of the public willing to comment on this item. I will be closing public comment and 
moving over to my fellow commissioners for any questions and concerns. No concerns, but just to thank you for the presentation. Thank you for what you're doing and uh, just hoping that, you know, as we listen to the public that there are uh, ways where we may hear someone's not knowing enough about the program or feeling not included or access, that it's ac accessible to them, that we would make sure um, we push even further because I can say throughout the years I have just watched many, many, many graduates and uh, workers move through the program and I'm just so amazingly happy to uh, hear Don's story and um, just such an eloquent young woman and uh, grateful for what this program has done for her and her family. So uh, thank you, City Bill. Thank you, Maria. I wanted to uh, start by thanking uh, Maria and Ken for the presentation. Ken, congratulations uh, on your upcoming leave. That's so wonderful. And of course, uh, George and the whole uh, team that work uh, on this incredible program. Uh, a, a couple questions uh, under the uh, guise of better, better, never done. Uh, I was wondering uh, if you have any uh, recommendations for uh, areas where we could ease administration to encourage participation or some things that your team is looking at uh, doing either on the um, city bill uh, side or on the SBE side, again, just to kind of reduce uh, you know, any friction for folks in, in participating. It seems like a lot has been done from the presentation in terms of aligning the city uh, OEWD program with OCII, um, but just wanted to see if there's anything else that we could explore uh, to make doing the right thing easy. Thank you for that question, Commissioner Drew. And I, I do want to actually uh, answer the question that uh, Brother James or Brother Oscar said. Uh, actually, our program, we fund YCD, Young Community Developers, that is uh, doing our on-ramp uh, violence prevention. So working with the community with barrier removal, which relates to your question. One of our biggest challenge in getting more workers to be qualified for uh, city build, right, and also the construction industry is some of these barriers. Right, and um, those are actually what uh, cost the most in a program, right? Um, because of limited resources, right? There's a uh, limited people that you can serve because of the uh, the amount of funding that's available. So even with that, right, the nonprofits are working really creatively to help uh, the individuals remove the barrier. And to uh, Commissioner Scott, what you were saying, I think the biggest thing in support that we can help is getting the word out there. Right. There's still a lot of people that don't know what City Build, uh, the program, and also uh, OCII Commission and JCYC, and all these programs is, uh, that's available in the city to help people get these opportunity. So the more we get the word out there and internally on our end, how do we rebrand, get our marketing material, get our service providers to be in the community? And that's actually been one of the challenges this last three years because of the pandemic. Early on, people weren't able to go out. We weren't able to congregate, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, we had, um, you know, uh, before the pandemic, economic boom. Hence, you saw the work hours, right? Then the shutdown. 
and uh, it was hard to get the word out there. Then now it's about picking up and getting the word back out there, getting in the community, making sure that the service providers and the individuals living in the community know this is a resource. And then the last part is the construction sector itself, right? We're challenged with, in a school district, right, that is promoting other industries, or you're looking in San Francisco where construction or other service uh, may not be something that the parents are pushing our young population to go into, right? We're fighting against that, right? Construction is a great, uh, not just a job, a career, right? Where you're going in to apprenticeship program for four to five years, and by the time you come out, you have zero debt, right? Your journey level, you're making more money than a new college graduate, right? That's going for, for whatever degree, right? So, uh, and of course, it's union, there's benefit, there's a lot of opportunities, there's jobs, and you're rebuilding and you're getting proud of uh, working your hands. So those are some of the challenges and how we can work with the school district to push for uh, counselors, right? To let people know that a construction is a uh, opportunity. And we've seen some progress because we are seeing younger population getting into city build. And um, uh, that's gonna be continuously pushing for more work to get people out there to join our program. So mm -hmm. hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, that's great. Um, one more uh, question and then, and then a request. Uh, so uh, Maria provided this really uh, excellent chart of the construction workforce comparison um, between 2019 and, and current day mm -hmm. and understanding you know, COVID, the level of construction that's happening, just the amount of jobs that are available. I mean, there's like 330,000 hours of difference mm -hmm. uh, between uh, the local hours that we're, we were seeing in uh, 2019, 2020, and, and uh, the most current year, that we, we talk in hours, but that's people. Mm -hmm. uh, what, where are those folks? Have they left the industry? Do you have a sense of, um, you know, if, uh, you know, how, how they're doing uh, and, and what we can do when hopefully this uh, uh, construction picks up to make sure that we're getting uh, folks on, uh, on our local folks on uh, construction projects. Uh, there's a combination. I don't know the exact statistics, mm -hmm. right? But then uh, for data-wise, what we see across the city, especially on public works contracts, right? It's similar type of decline, right? From mm -hmm. the airport to the PUC to all the city-funded projects, right? We've seen a decline from pre-pandemic all the way down to now, right? And some of the workers, uh, they're waiting, right, um, for work to come pick back up. Yep. So they're sitting on the outer work list. So we do see a higher uh, bench, right, of uh, union uh, workers uh, waiting for their opportunity. So compared to, of course, before the pandemic and throughout the pandemic. So uh, there's still workers that's waiting for their next opportunity. There's, uh, of course, uh, workers will go where the work is. So uh, construction is a, uh, you know, uh, you're traveling for work. Right, so wherever the work is, they're gonna go. So if the, you know, I heard that like San Leandro and the East Bay, there's a lot of work picking up. South Bay, in particular in the peninsula where there's a big boom of like uh, bio, biotech companies, right, being built. So you see, you drive down 101, you see all the buildings being built. A lot of workers are going towards that area, right? And of course with, uh, you know, the Silicon Valley, the new building, San Jose. So it's a regional effort. So we do see workers going in the regional area. So as work picks back up in San Francisco, we're gonna see those workers come back yeah that's mm -hmm. great and I would just say I remember when there was no one on the bench mm -hmm. <laughs> and that was that yep. was our barrier uh, but now hearing that there are folks uh, on the bench you know hoping we can get above this 22 uh, 23 percent uh, local hire uh, on on our projects seeing that there's uh, qualified folks uh, available to work uh, on on our projects yes mm -hmm. 
the uh, last uh, request I had uh, was, um, you know, and I don't know if you currently collect this data, uh, and if not, uh, maybe we could consider it, but was to understand uh, hours worked by trade. Uh, so that we could start seeing where are the electricians, where are the plumbers, uh, you know, how um, are folks progressing from, you know, their initial uh, work as, I'm, I'm assuming kind of most folks start as carpenters, um, you know, how are uh, they progressing uh, throughout their uh, careers uh, and, and just the full, full scope um, of impact we're having. Uh, so project specific, it can be broken down by trade. Mm -hmm. So I'll uh, let the uh, staff uh, uh, answer of, uh, how they can provide that for the commission. Right? But then under the certified payroll system, right, it is tracked like which trade. Now what we don't have is if they change craft, right? Like so, okay. uh, for example, we may not know if someone started as a uh, carpenter and moved to electrician. We just know what their certified payroll, what they submitted. So if we look deeper into city builds data, mm -hmm. right, we may be able to see like, okay, this uh, these individuals started in this trade, and then when they came back to check in with us for retention services, now they're in a different trade. Okay. And then under the state uh, Department of Apprenticeship Standards, uh, the individuals do show like if they've uh, completed their apprenticeship or they left their apprenticeship. Uh, if they left, uh, whether they left for another trade, that's where their um, personal information can be identified and you could track. Great. Wonderful. Great. Glad to hear that you're collecting all of that data with you know some, some caveats. Yep. Um, and would be really uh, interested in seeing how we're performing. Great. Thank, Thank you. you, Commissioner Drew. All right. Yeah, I would just like to add that we do, LCP Tracker does have the ability um, to look at hours by trade um, for the different projects. And then in terms of small business, in terms of barriers, um, in terms of increased participation, barrier removal is always, you know, um, or just different barriers to get into the industry is something we're constantly looking at. Um, I did recently participate in a working group with Renaissance Entrepreneurship Center. Um, and I thought this group was really amazing because um, it included a lot of city partners. I actually gave a presentation on our program um, in the last group, but it also included um, small businesses and some of the contractors that we work with. The representatives, representatives from Nibby, Cahill, Splinterton, um, and other firms basically um, having a really honest conversation about why small businesses may not be selected and then small businesses also offering, you know, their challenges. And so I think that group um, definitely will be telling and be able to inform us even more in terms of like um, what some of these barriers are and how we can, you know, work um, to attack them, you know, and um, look at ways that we can rem um, help remove them to be able to get more participation. That's fantastic. I'm really glad to hear that that working group uh, is set up. And you know, if it, uh, if at some point it makes uh, comes to some recommendations, it'd be wonderful to um, receive that uh, uh, for the commission to receive that through an info memo or just an, an update uh, on where some of those barriers might be and some recommendations for how to address them. But thank you, thank you for all your work on this. Thank you. Good afternoon, commissioners. George Bridges, Contract Compliance Supervisor. And I just want to also add that the director of the Contract Monitoring Department, uh, Stephanie Tang and myself, we've had lots of conversations and the Mayor's Office of Housing has a small business program as well. The community is really beginning to embrace small business uh, utilization. And the Southeast, we're seeing much more energy around first consideration, you know, District 10. Uh, small business participation. So I think having conversations with other city departments, continuing that relationship is really important. 
And then looking at the workforce statistics, we did look at the last three months, and it has increased. It's around 27%. So our affordable housing projects tend to do better at the local hire, and we have four um, projects that will be fully up and running in the next calendar year, or I should say fiscal year. So we're looking for our workforce to increase. Wonderful. Thank you for those updates. Thank you, George. And just want to say we will miss you, young man, but congratulations on the little one. Yes. Congratulations. And you didn't say, will you be returning? Yes. Okay. okay. And um, thank you all. I, I just want to say um, thank you for Maria for the detailed report. Um, and that every, I applaud you all for the work that you're doing. Um, I do believe our city is uh, constantly changing, moving. So I do, I'm very optimistic about the work ahead. Um, also, um, yeah, I just applaud you all and I want you to continue upward and onward. So thank you for all that you do. So um, I know my fellow commissioners covered a lot of the things that um, I probably wanted to bring up, but I still had a couple additional kind of questions um, regarding, um, I'll start probably with city build, that way it'll be faster. But um, in the sense of city build, I remember a couple years ago, there were excess funds um, that were not being used for training programs, um, and we just always had kind of an excess of about 40 to 60K. Um, even though we had full participation. And so just was checking back in to see if anything has been done, if we still kind of have those additional funds at the end of the fiscal year, and if we have added additional classes or um, added services to our participants. I think uh, for fiscal year budgetary purposes, right, it's just um, uh, we, I don't think it was carried forward, right, as part of our purpose, right, but then yeah. uh, what we use for city build for our funding, right, is to continue to expand the program. So, for example, in the presentation, one of the training that we did in partnership with the Wreckin Park is to focus on the India Basin. So, the India Basin Park, which is right in the heart of the southeast, right, is a new park, right, new community that's going to be built. And we actually utilize those funds to run two training programs focused on Bayview residents, right? Hence, uh, APRI, it was the lead agency, and YCD did participate in that as a recruitment and barrier removal, right, to get individuals ready for those trainings. So then in that training, right, very focused on uh, one of the addition, uh, which was not uh, included in some of the training, is we actually provided um, a form of stipend for the uh, individuals coming in. Because it's very challenging to go through training, especially when it's unpaid. So some of the resources that's added, right, is to provide direct, uh, uh, basically, payment to the individuals going to work as part of their supportive services. In addition to their very removal, of course, uh, all their supportive services on getting their tools paid, right, as you heard, uh, so what the participants get, right, is um, the union dues paid. 
And um, of course, uh, they, as they're going through training, they get the stipend to support themselves while they complete the training. So those are the resources that would go into a training program. So we did that last fiscal year for the India Basin. So this year we have uh, continued for the academy, right? One of the um, extra, I think we mentioned it in the last presentation, is a, a universal basic income model where individuals coming through CityBuild gets a guaranteed income Right, uh, up to $3,000 when they're going through the program, and uh, it's paid through the first uh, month, they'll get uh, $500, right, just to make sure they're there for the training, not for the money, right, so then the next month they get $1,500, and the last month they get $1,000, on top of all the other supportive services they're getting, so all the support that OCII provides is added into that um, uh, support that the individuals get as they're going through the program, and of course the most important, which we get as a survey for graduates of our program, they're not there for the money, they're there for the job. So when they come out and you see the placement numbers in OCII, they find that more valuable than anything else, getting in their first job as an apprentice in the trade and continuously working. So hopefully that answered your question, Commissioner Brackett. Yes, um, that answered that um, aspect of the training. Also would like to get a little bit more informed on, um, I know a lot of them go through apprentice, but then there's challenges for them to become journeymen, mm -hmm. et cetera, and having enough hours. Um, and so what has City Bill been doing to kind of address those disparities? Because um, I know we've adopted a lot of racial equity um, pro propositions throughout the city in different departments and especially OCII, and I know that's been a challenge. Um, specifically um, in southeast sector hires, mm -hmm. um, especially within the black community because there's been some incidents of racism on different um, construction site projects. And so I was just trying to find out um, how or if that's being addressed in terms of longer term retention versus just kind of um, being hired on projects to be flag holders and not really mm -hmm. receiving additional training on site to be able to move up and um, receive that on the job training, et cetera. Yes, two parts to that answer. So one, uh, the work that OCI is doing and of course city's uh, local hiring policy, making sure that contractors are held accountable to hire participants, uh, participants from our program. So without those jobs, right, and making sure without those policies, the workers don't have an opportunity. So uh, uh, as you've heard from the staff, right, that these are the monthly meetings that we have. These are the reports that we generate to the contractors to make sure that their performance is up to what we expect them to do. And if not, what are the actions that they need to take? And ultimately is to hire referrals from our program. Whether they graduated from city build or they're coming off the street, they're a local resident, they're from the community. We wanna make sure that they give these individuals opportunity because without the work, they won't get the hours, right, to get promoted up their stages of their apprenticeship. So just that alone, right, is making a big difference for the workers. Then on top of that, City Build have a retention program. So we fund our nonprofit agencies for graduates of our program that they actually come back to the uh, um, the service provider is Charity Cultural Services, and uh, we help uh, with continuously uh, providing supportive services. So if an individual, they've been out of work for a while, we refer them back out to work, right? On not just OCII, but projects across the city and in the airport and uh, other jurisdictions that may be able to hire a worker that they need, right? Then on top of that, if they don't have, uh, just say they've been laid off for a while, they don't have uh, financial to support them to pay their union dues or get, they ran out of gas or they can't pay for insurance, our retention services help pay for some of those fees. 
okay. right? So those are additional funding, actually, OCII helps support mm -hmm. that, right? Yeah. And part of our services that we provide to the community. So through that retention services, we're able to keep, make sure that um, you know, they get continuously referred out to work, and if they need support, whether to help them and other nonprofits also uh, ch uh, chip in, mm -hmm. right? If, if we don't have enough uh, resources for them, they, we refer them out to the other agencies that may be able to help them that City Bill can't. So through that collective effort, we're maintaining, maintaining that they stay in the industry, they get the job, they get the support they need. And uh, as part of the retention, we actually have gatherings, right, where uh, the cohorts come together, right, to support each other. They'll talk to each other like, hey, I'm having these challenges, or, well, I, uh, we have uh, graduates from 10 years ago that come in, their journey level. They give them guidance to give them support on how they can succeed in the industry. And of course, our contractors, like you see Samuel hiding in the back with BGI, he provides mentorship, right? So he'll give guidance to some of our referrals, like, hey, you know what, um, I see you, this is what you're doing out there, maybe you should do this better, or like, you know, change some of your habits because uh, we want to make sure you succeed. So those are the mentorship and it's based on this partnership with our contractors, with our unions, with our staff within the uh, city bill. So from, um, you know, Tawana Gray, AJ Thomas, uh, Fatinia Holmes, right? Uh, we have uh, Richard Fukuhara. These are our staff I want to recognize that's doing the work. And Janet Gomes, who's our operations manager, right? That's out there working with individuals to make sure that they succeed. So that's how we uh, do a full wraparound service. I just want to say thank you for that. I know that um, those were some of the questions that we had in the past and didn't really have a lot of updates, so I'm really proud and happy to hear that they're getting those wraparound services because we were kind of getting concerned with, you know, if you fall short on your union dues, you're not really able to go to the hall or even pick up a job. So it's, I'm very happy to hear that we've now put some stopgap measures and some safety nets in there so that people can fully participate at whatever stage or level they're at. Thank you, Chair. Um, and then um, my last question is around um, SFUSD partnerships with Building and Trades. Um, I know that um, one of the things you said is like in terms of like what parents want their pathways to be. Um, I know currently SFUSD has been in a long-term partnership with Building and Trades to do their Sandcastle annual mm -hmm. event with the elementary school kids. However, it's not really a widespread program. Um, a lot of the students across, and especially in the southeast sector of town, don't participate in that. Um, and um, are there ways in which... Um, City build, SFUSD, and possibly building and trades can do more outreach, not just at the elementary school level, of course, getting more schools involved in the Sandcastle Challenge, but also um, ways in which City Build might also be able to partner with Building and Trades in terms of um, high school opportunities. I know when I was in high school, um, very few other high schools had any kind of woodworking, metal shop, or any kind of construction trade classes. Um, I went to Lowell, so we did have architecture design. <laughs> So that was a benefit because we had other things like that. But are there any efforts towards partnering with SFUSD and the future to kind of bring back some of that training since we know that at least OCI, we're going to be building for the next 30 years. Um, we do want local um, youth to look to us as a way for them to build their resume, um, find a profession that they can purchase a house here in San Francisco, you know, stuff like that, so. Yeah. I think uh, for the school district, they kind of have different programs set up for different high schools. For John O'Connell, that's the trade school of architectural and also trade, they actually, the building and trades have an instructor mm -hmm. teaching, uh, you know, a wood shop. 
at uh, John O'Connell High School as the uh, kind of designated school for the trade, right? Mm -hmm. But then uh, also on the city build side, we fund the uh, Brightline Defense Project, mm -hmm. which works with JCYC and other uh, nonprofits that deals with, works with youth mm -hmm. to go into the high schools to do workshops to, to let people know like, hey, these are opportunities to join city build. So actually every se semester they go into the schools, work with the high school students that have identified their interest in the trade, and then go through their uh, pre kind of training before they get into city build, and afterwards they get referred to city build to go through uh, our process. On top of that, uh, next spring I'm going to be working with UCSF. Right, oh, to do some type of uh, career fair for the trades and the building and trades, right? That's what we're working on to um, recruit and, of course, target the high school graduates. Sometime in the spring is the early time to kind of get in front of the schools. So by the time uh, the students are thinking about what they're doing after high school, they've already gone to this event, right? They learn about the trades, uh, what uh, city builders and how to get involved, and specifically working with UCSF because there's a big hospital that's being built up in Parnassus. Yes. So it's a good way to get them excited. You're going to be part of this big mega project that's five plus years, just like what we did uh, with OCII on the Chase Center. We also recruited from the high schools, and they were excited to learn about the Chase Center before it was built. So those are the strategies that we learned through OCII as a way to kind of continuously getting the high school students excited to join our uh, industry. Thank you. Executive Director Kloslowski. Yeah, Ma Madam Chair. Madam Chair, this is just an informational item, so if you've exhausted all your questions, got good information from the team, um, I think you can go on with your agenda. Thank you. So I just want to thank the team again for that amazing presentation and asking, answering all of the Commission's questions. Madam Secretary, can you please call the next item? Next is agenda item number 5E, which is an informational update on the legislative status of Senate Bill number 593 authorizing OCII to finance the construction of replacement affordable housing units. Discussion. Director Koslovsky. Thank you, Madam Secretary. Um, the Commission has heard uh, from me on this uh, item a lot over the past couple months has been going through this legislative process. Um, but this is an update on Senate Bill 593, otherwise known as replacement housing as we call it. Um, the legislation has passed both the Assembly and the Senate and is on the governor's desk for a signature, and we're hoping that um, that'll be signed soon. Um, we're here to just give you an update on the status of the legislation, what the legislation says, what it does, um, and talk about a community engagement process going forward. So to talk about that is Elizabeth Colomello, our housing manager for OCAI. Thank you. Good afternoon, Chair Brackett, commissioners. As Director Kozlovsky mentioned, my name is Elizabeth Colomello, Housing Program Manager, here to provide an informational update on SB 593. As a reminder, SB 593 allows OCII to use a portion of tax increment financing to fund and develop 5,842 units destroyed and never replaced by the former redevelopment agency. The portion of tax increment we are allowed to use per this legislation is what remains after funding our current enforceable obligations in Mission Bay, Trans Bay, and the Shipyard and Candlestick Point, and after our tax increment pledge to schools and other taxing entities. 
Our current estimate is that the first funds would be available in late 2025 to 2026. And in order to fund the full 5,842 units, we expect to have several issuances over the following 30 plus years through around 2060. This timeline assumes that we're able to leverage traditional funding sources for affordable housing development, such as tax exempt bonds and low income housing tax credits, which would cover about 50% of project costs. This highlights the need for us to keep costs in check as much as possible and to maximize our leveraging of other sources and projects with replacement housing funds so we can maintain the already long timeline that we have projected. Replacement housing units must be developed fo following affordable housing standards set forth in the state law governing redevelopment agencies. So under that law, units may be built anywhere in San Francisco and must be restricted to affordable, restricted to and affordable to households at or below the income categories of people displaced. They must have long-term affordability restrictions, which for us will mean essentially in perpetuity what we call the life of the project. And they are in addition to our existing obligation to build housing within our current project areas. As I mentioned, leveraging other sources of uh, funding sources is key to meeting the goals of the legislation. Um, and CRL also has a requirement that replacement housing be built within four years of the destruction of a unit. Obviously, that can't be met here, but it does highlight the need for us to move as quickly as possible within the constraints of the funding. I want to touch on the impact of replacement housing legislation on our certificate of preference or COP holders. Replacement housing funds will essentially expand the supply of affordable housing for which COP holders are eligible. As you know, OCII and MoCD currently provide COP holders with the first preference on 100% of units in OCII funded affordable housing. If the COP holder meets the eligibility criteria for an affordable unit, they shall be approved before all other applicants. In 2022, the state legislature expanded the COP pool to include descendants. So COP holders, including descendants, will receive first preference for all replacement housing units. And I'm excited about the timing of this legislation since we have been increasing and improving our COP marketing and outreach efforts over the years and our efforts to locate COP holders. And we're planning to continue to do that. So this legislation will allow us to create more opportunities for those COP holders, including descendants. And we hope, given everything that I have just mentioned, to have even more COP holders applying for housing going forward. We've received some input during the legislative process and have, and have just recently discussed this legislation at our COP committee, which was held last week. We plan to hold a, a series of workshops on the legislation um, and, initial, and initial steps for implementation at our CACs and at commission in the upcoming week, as you can see here. And in early November, we will ask commission to approve a priority policy to establish broad categories that the funding can be used for. Some of the questions and feedback we received during the legislative process were, will OCII develop housing in areas where urban renewal era displacement occurred and or in existing project areas? And if also if there would be near-term affordable housing opportunities, particularly for COP holders. 
The initial answers to those questions is that we do plan to take full advantage of the flexibility that the legislation allows to finance units outside of project areas. And we think it, it makes sense to focus some of those funds on the areas where the displacement occurred. We also have opportunities within project areas to increase affordable housing opportunities in, in addition to what we're already obligated to do in those areas. And we could get started on those right away. So um, that's just a little bit of information, but there's a lot to come on this, and we're really looking forward to the process and to hearing your input. So this concludes staff's presentation, and I'm here to answer any questions. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. Um, Madam Secretary, can you please call for public comment? We'd like to invite members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item to call 415-655-0001, enter access code 2660-308-8590, followed by the pound sign, then the pound sign again to enter the call. Please press star then three on your mobile devices to be placed in the queue. And if you're already listening to us by phone and you'd like to provide public comment, please press star three and wait for your turn. At this time, we'd like to invite Mr. Oscar James to come up to the podium. Thank you, commissioners, staff. Anyway, Oscar James. I'm a certificate holder, okay? Before I started working with redevelopment, I was on the joint house and I was the youngest person on the redevelopment, I mean, joint housing committee. And we went around to the different people who was going to be relocated before they built the Jackie Robinson uh, units, which was the first units they built in Hunters Point. And our problem was back then, we didn't want redevelopment to do Hunters Point like they did Western Edition. Relocated all those people, tore down their buildings and what have you. And some were real nice buildings, such as the Booker T uh, uh, Hotel and what have you. But anyway, when they came out, we would go out to the different tenants and homeowners out there and tell them that redevelopment's coming, they're gonna be tearing different things down, developing our community. They were supposed to build a shopping center on top of the hill, et cetera. But when we left there in those units, myself personally was making paying $59, okay? My wife was working at the post office. I was working at redevelopment and city hall at the same time. And then I was doing a little bit of construction because I had I was a member of 261. But anyway, we were, we were making good money. Now, redevelopment didn't ask us how much money we were making when they tore our place down. Lucky enough, I bought me a home and what have you. There's a lot of people what didn't have the opportunity to buy homes. But they weren't paying all this $2,000, $3,000, $4,000 worth of, for rent, okay? And it was a mixture of people. So we had... People's in, in uh, Soma, which we call South Park back, at, back in the day, but Soma, they were re uh, displaced, never got certificates. And I think they should be getting certificates or some kind of priority in housing. But my, my whole thing is we want these 5,000 units of housing, 6,000 units of housing, to go to certificate holders as a preference because they relocated all those people's businesses and what have you, okay? And what they asked for, because I get the, the thing every time we, you guys build uh, new units for rentals or home ownership and what have you, and what you're asking for people is to pay for those units 
is totally impossible. When people are working for Muni and different things like that, and they're making over the wage, and they have certificates, and still can't move back into their communities, that's a shame. You know, don't play no games with the certificate holders and saying you have a preference and they come and want to move back home because a lot of them move to Hayward and different places like that, want to come back home, and they don't have, really have the opportunity to come back to their community because you say you're making too much money. And I think you guys need to change it. You need to start looking at that. And it's a real, I have a personal problem with it, and I have a home. You see what I'm saying? But what about my kids when they want to get something or, or other kids? We have brothers and sisters coming home from the pen who have certificates. How are they going to afford to pay two, $3,000? You see what I'm saying? You know, so, I mean, we, we got to be realistic and make sure the people who were in San Francisco, in these areas that was torn down, have the opportunity, real opportunity, to move back into their communities and have ownerships. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. James. Are there any other members of the public wishing to comment on this item in person? And if, again, if there are any members of the public on the phone wishing to com uh, provide comments, please press star three on your mobile devices. Madam Chair, it does not appear we have any members of the public wishing to speak further. Seeing we have no um, further comments from the public, I will close public comment and ask that we take a short um, five-minute recess um, so that Commissioner Scott can um, use the restroom and come right back. San Francisco Government Television.
Welcome back to our October 3rd meeting on the commission, LCI commission. Um, we just um, closed out public comment and I am now gonna refer to my fellow commissioners to see if you have any comments or suggestions or questions regarding um, item 5E. So this will be the policy um, determining um, how replacement housing will be used um, through our agency in the future. It's it's a discussion item, so you we can have a discussion on things that you want to discuss or you feel it's important to discuss moving forward. Thank you. I'm pleased with what we've done and how far we've come, but I also see that we need to go further. And it's this whole thing where we have so many people that are COP holders, but they've given up because they either make too much or don't make enough. And it disqualifies them. They desperately would love to come back to the city but they don't have that qualification because $100 too much, $200 too much. Uh, one person said it was just a matter of maybe 20 or 30 or it wasn't a large amount, but it prevents them to have access to that whole benefit of coming back. And so, I'm running out of reasons to go and tell so many people about this wonderful opportunity that doesn't work for them. And I'm just wondering, what can we do with our policies? Uh, how do we help this issue? I know um, it's not an OCII thing. It's bigger than that much larger, but I think we can start somewhere in addressing it better, deeper, and um, just kind of pressing into it because um, so many of our city leaders are saying, that doesn't work. You know, it's not supposed to work. So what do we do about that? And I'm just asking that we consider what can be done on our part, uh, starting somewhere that would really get the ears of those that make these decisions and can change or uh, amend or do something with our policies that are not addressing the need and the benefits that could be available. Uh, I have a quick clarifying question on what the legislation does and doesn't allow. Uh, does all the housing have to be uh, new, or does it also allow for the repair and restoration of existing units, like pr a preservation? It does allow for preservation, so the housing does not need to be 100% new construction. Uh, preservation is an allowable use of the funds as well. Yes. Great. Thank, thank you for that sure. clarification. 
Um, because I think there's a real opportunity there to meet the immediate needs we're seeing with the COP holders. Uh, in that, you know, let's not wait for new housing to be designed and built and occupiable in order to meet the needs of the COP holders uh, we know of today who are looking for housing. I think there's effectively like two big ideas with this, with this piece of legislation. The first is the replacement housing obligation and, you know, building net new housing uh, available uh, for, for the city. The second is meeting the needs of our COP holders, and I think that's equally, if not more, uh, important. And I'm wondering if there can't be a more micro-scale program set up for these funds to really ask the COP holders, what housing are you looking for? And then seeking that out and proactively purchasing it uh, on the on the market and deed restricting it for affordable housing in perpetuity, just to you know not kind of say, hey, we you know we we thought about what we wanted to bake and we baked it and is this the type of housing you'd like, you know instead kind of say what what are you looking for, um, how can we meet your and your family's immediate needs uh, and make that housing unit permanently um, affordable to to others moving moving forward. So I mean it's a it's a much more it's a very micro scale project, but I think given the severity of the impact that we've had, uh, that the redevelopment agency has had to this community, it's time to really go above and beyond and to create some type of very bespoke program uh, to, to meet the needs uh, of COP holders uh, and, and their descendants. So I wanted to throw that out uh, just as an idea because I think we have a real opportunity, again, given that we can leverage funds for existing units. The housing market in San Francisco is seemingly depressed. Uh, you know, now could be a really good time to, to go out and to, to do this at scale. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that uh, discussion there. I would like to um, echo a little bit what our Vice Chair Scott mentioned in regards to if we address a policy for the COP holders, how can we allow those who have been waiting for so long, how do we how soon can we have them, if they've been waiting for so long, can it just be something done? And forgive me of my naivety on that, on this, um, but how soon can we just approve it right away if they've been waiting for so long? And forgive me again if I'm not too knowledgeable in that. No, no, not at all, sure. As, as far as timing, um, you know, Clarify COP holders currently have the first priority in 100% of units funded by OCII and also for most CD units. So th there are existing units available um, to, to COP ho holders. Um, but one thing, you know, the, one of the wonderful things about this legislation it'll, is it will allow us to expand on that. And, um, you know, I think we expect to. Uh, use the flexibility allowed by the legislation to have different types of housing in different locations. Um, you know, we currently have in our existing project areas um, some parcels that we 
already have that we could increase the number of units on, get started with those right away so that could come on board quicker. Um, we do expect to partner with MoCD. They have a large pipeline of projects, including some small sites, which are much like you described, Commissioner Drew. Um, so I think I think using the flexibility that the legislation allows, you know, will allow us to, um, you know, have some kind of longer-term projects um, that will allow us to, you know, kind of start from scratch and create projects, um, and also to kind of plug into existing projects that meet the needs of COP holders on the shorter term. Um, so I, you know, I, I do I do think we we hope to be able to to you know, do multiple types of housing with this. If, yeah. I'm, if I may, through the chair, uh, just to add a little bit more to that, Commissioner Aquino, um, one thing that we want to emphasize or highlight is that um, the money for replacement housing comes in over time. Uh, in fact, a few decades of time because it relies on the city's portion of the tax increment, which is um, a smaller portion than the broader redevelopment tax increment that's available. Um, in either event, there's a certain amount available per year. Um, if the governor were to sign something today, which I don't believe he, he is doing right now, but nonetheless, if he were to sign it today, the law would only become effective in 2024. We'd be able to begin a bond issuance process because these are high capital costs, which takes about a year to do um, uh, next year in 2024. So it'd be really 2025 before we'd have any money to spend. So we're looking, no matter what we do, at uh, a minimum 2025 to be able to look at projects. Um, and at this point now, we're um, just looking at what should be the kinds of priority priorities um, when looking at projects in 2025. Um, so Ms. Colomello referred to some land that we have in Mission Bay, which we had talked about, where we could uh, increase density there. There might be other opportunities out there. As Commissioner Drew suggested, maybe there's some existing buildings. MOACD already has a program called the Small Sites Program, which buys uh, sub-25 unit uh, buildings that are existing, that, don't, that are not affordable deed restricted. Uh, they purchase them and put a deed restriction on, on them. We could potentially fund uh, that program or conduct some of those kinds of uh, purchases ourselves. Um, so these are all good ideas, but I just wanted to give that um, timeline of the, the, the project, uh, excuse me, the, the phasing of the funding. Um, when we modeled this, we looked at really bond issuances going out for another 30 years, uh, just because of the amount that's available per year, because it does come out of the broader pool of uh, property taxes. Thank you so much. If I could also um, bring this other um, issue up that has been very, very hard and complicated, where many of the COP holders will go through the process and right at the end, they've selected their apartment, it's been approved, and then they have them to do another little piece of paperwork and it says, oh, you don't make enough, or you make too much. And it's like, why didn't they tell them that up front? So maybe um, in a bracket of this, that, or the other, whatever that amount might be, and looking at their income, they're told ahead of time. Instead of, as it was said, months and months, they're working on it, moving towards it, and they're getting closer and closer 
and then they call and let us know they've been approved. So we tell, you know, the leaders, the churches, the outreach centers, see, there's another one, only to hear from them later. I had to do the final piece of paperwork after all these months, and I've been told I don't make enough or I make too much. And so there again, perhaps that processing needs to be revisited and so that they don't go through that hope disparity. It's, you know, that, that's a crushing thing to happen uh, when you get that close and they take pictures, they go visit the place, and then denied. If I may, through the chair, Commissioner Scott, uh, I think um, when we do our annual housing production report and certificate of preference marketing report, we can um, bring some information to highlight the process to under better understand, for my own education as well, but for the public to see what does the qualification process look like over some sort of time frame with some major, major milestones so we could look for areas for improvement. Thank you, sir. I myself am going to read to you guys possibly a um, lengthy statement right now because I feel that um, we talk a lot about the outcomes without talking about the actual inputs and how these policies have actually um, not produced the outputs that we want. And if we really are trying to be intentional and use this housing as replacement housing as it is you know, being promoted to the public, promoted to those who are looking for housing and, and actually um, effectively doing what we promised to do, um, which was offering a true right of return to residents who were displaced, I think we really have to um, unpack and not talk about making incremental change at this point of time, but really talk about making some deep, deep structural policy changes that will ensure that we get those outcomes that we're all saying that we want. Um, the incremental changes has not worked. And so I would like to see a revamping of this policy in a whole new way with an equitable lens on it. And so um, I'll just start off my kind of um, comments. So although the city has taken steps to undo the damage caused by past policies and practices, the racial disparities caused continue to be in this present day. So despite progress in addressing explicit discrimination, racial inequities continue to be deep, pervasive, and persistent in San Francisco. In the 50s and beyond, particularly in the context of the national civil rights movement, systemic racism in San Francisco has become much less explicit, moving away from overtly racist-based exclusionary policies that were implemented by um, Herman, um, regarding land or business ownership, the city's more recent and increasingly sophisticated racism has been defined by inaction or lack of intervention with regards to racial discrimination and employment, housing, neighborhood choice through implicit exclusionary zoning, education, health care, the criminal justice system, and we have never repaired the harm nor apologized formally to those who were impacted by the redevelopment and urban renewal or what they used to call Negro removal actions. I'm asking that the OCII staff look into ULI's 10 principles of embedding racial equity in real estate development um, as we're developing this policy. Last week, the SF Reparations Committee released its final report 
in it is cited OCII and San Francisco Redevelopment Agency role. And so I'd just like to briefly share that there are five key elements of reparations, which I think not only explains the moment in time in which this commission will be taking this historic action, but also how it also mirrors and complements our agency's already established equity, diversity and equity inclusion statements, and our moral obligation to pursue justice and equity at all costs. One, secession and assurance of non-repetition of the harm. We have not been able to give that to COP members. The harm is still continuing. Number two, restitution and repatriation. That's another area in which we have not been able to properly um, do. Number three, compensation. And reports that I have received from MOHCD in terms of compensation that happened at the time of removal and displacement, it was not done in an equitable fashion or in an honorable way. Um, I can talk about key stories such as Leola King um, in the Fillmore and other black business owners and homeowners who were displaced and not given real value for their property. And the report that we were given to the COP committee specifically about the 888 businesses that were displaced, they said the present value that was given at that time back then of those businesses was less than $500,000. There is most single businesses are worth more than that. And to imagine that a whole neighborhood of six, 66 blocks and 888 businesses were only given less than $500,000 collectively is unacceptable. And we need to do something to repair that harm for the business certificate of preference program that was never delivered upon by our agency. Um, in addition, um, the last two of those um, are also number four, which is satisfaction. Um, as Dr. Scott has, uh, Commissioner Scott has mentioned, and other people, and um, Oscar James has mentioned today, there is no satisfaction from the community that was harmed. And number five, there's been no opportunity for rehabilitation. Um, I'm going to read off some of the 10 comments that were given by the COP um, committee members in our last COP meeting just to share with you what the community is asking for, not what I'm asking for, what the community is asking for, and then I'll follow that up with some recent things that our mayor and MOHCD has successfully accomplished in some of their newer policy um, adjustments and stuff like that. So I'll start with what the COP committee has asked for. Number one, they're asking that the development of the 5,842 affordable housing units under SB 593 for SF Replacement Housing Act should be used as replacement housing for displaced COP holders only. Um, they feel that um, because we've already developed so, many, so much other housing that COP holders have um, only been able to access less than 1% of the housing that we've delivered to date, that it would be unfair to release these 6,000 units to anyone and everyone who would qualify without actually doing due diligence to actually identify all of those COP holders to make sure that they can properly access those 6,000 units. Number two is begin a transition of COP program to the Office of Reparations for more focused attention. Um, they do not feel that MOHCD has done their due diligence or is um, 
the proper vehicle by which COP should continue to be managed through um, due to staffing shortages, lack of transparency, as well as lack of um, equitable outcomes. Number three, maintain the same income levels or AMI categories at the time of displacement. Um, we've heard from Mr. Hashimoto about um, his experiences as well as Oscar James today about how various AMI categories can both help and harm um, COP displacees. Um, we've heard um, that many of them fall under the AMI of various different projects that we've worked on um, and that there are other projects where um, they are over the AMI um, when they do find out about it. Um, number four, um, they're asking for an economic impact report, which will um, share intergenerational wealth lost from eminent domain actions from 1945 to present, um, that our organization partner with the Black Developers Forum to write a business plan for the financing and development of those 5,842 replacement units. Number five is to create a fund for COP. Um, potentially a community land trust to represent the affordable housing and economic development interests of COP holders specifically around those 5,842 replacement units and 883 displaced COP businesses. So similar to what um, Commissioner Tamsin just mentioned, um, having an actual dedicated organization that is doing this work um, with the interest of COP and not balancing it with the issues of the wider city, which doesn't address COP holders specifically or the displaced population. Number six, um, HUD funding to assist with housing homeless and displaced COP holders. That hasn't necessarily been flushed out. Um, this is the first time I'm seeing it on this list from them, so we'll have to potentially either get more information from the COP committee on what exactly they mean by that. Um, so I won't try and extrapolate um, what they're thinking. Um, I have some, some other things, some other things that I've ideas of my own, but I don't want to put that on them. Um, number seven is COP down payment assistance and rental assistance programs and funding. Um, we have heard year after year that there is not enough money in the rental assistance, down payment assistance for COP holders to be able to take advantage of housing opportunities when presented with them. Oftentimes, the money from um, MOHCD programs run out, and they are not able to move into the units because they're not able to get security deposits or um, down payment assistance because the money is already gone. And they lose out on those once-in-a-lifetime housing opportunities. Um, eight is relational credit reporting to buy or rent affordable housing. Um, with that, I'm imagining, because we've had discussions about that, they um, would like there to be a more flexible way of um, understanding and grading credit so that um, with the new models of credit reporting and different ways in which um, they'd like MOHCD to take a more um, flexible um, way of um, reviewing and establishing credit, credit worthiness to get into either rental units and or purchasing and BMRs. Number nine is a COP small sites and small business programs acquisition funding and technical support, um, a COP business certificate and a project equity. Not sure exactly all the details about that, but there has been some discussions around um, how small businesses can get support in um, 
getting into spaces and receive long-time funding support. I believe Officer James has testified several times that when redevelopment took actions in places like um, the produce market, they actually offered um, $1 rent for 50 years for all of the businesses that were in that project area, including one of the businesses that took advantage of that was Bank of America. Um, and so when you think about that and think about how that's <laughs> wealth building and if that opportunity was offered to a small business or someone who locally, how that could sustain them versus us giving those types of credits to a large corporation that's worth billions, um, you can see where equity needs to be at the forefront of some of these discussions and these policy directives and also how um, this ends up getting translated in terms of our outcomes. And then 10, they asked for a policy change allowing for the users of, for the use of sworn affidavits to substantiate a person's um, COP, um, I guess, approval. Um, we've heard time and time from community that sometimes the threshold to certify that someone is a COP holder or a descendant of COP holder has created challenges and they've been rejected multiple times and been asked to provide documentation that they don't have um, or cannot access or will never be able to access. As you know, there are various black families that do not have access to their original birth certificates, their medical records and or their school records and MOHCD's current program requires those documents in order for them to receive their certificate of preference even though MOHCD holds information that shows that that person is a descendant or was a an, um, part of the household. So um, we really need to look at how do we stop putting the onus on the community that's already been impacted to prove that they've been impacted when we already have the records that show that. I think that's double work and it's unnecessary at some point and it just creates additional barriers to the persons who are coming forth and wanting to participate in this program because they feel that they are being shut out purposely or um, being um, unnecessary barriers so they can even access. Um, so that was it from the COP committee. I'm now going to, um, I spent a lot of time this past week um, talking to various nonprofit housing developers as well as entities around um, affordable housing and some best practices that have been used, I think, in our report earlier um, that was given in terms of the things that we like to see and the things that we're proud of, which is like SBE retention rates as well as local hire rates. We see that we've had higher percentages when they have been community development projects, um, specifically around affordable housing. So this looks like this could be a really um, impactful area where we can continue to grow our numbers in that way and continue to do that type of work. So would just like to share some challenges that even nonprofit um, housing providers um, deal with when we're talking about creating policy around 6,000 new units. So number one, um, they'd like to see more unbundling of larger projects and it, in order to increase the participation rates for SBE firms, which match, matches their capacity better than large bundled projects. Um, an example of that is, um, when there are larger projects that are bundled, um, two, three, four sites together, that disadvantages SBE because typically they don't have the capacity to run three major projects at the same time. 
So while they may be funded for that and to do the work, it, provi it also creates um, issues along the way. And um, it's a better uses of time and also better opportunities for SBEs to be the lead themselves on projects um, when projects aren't bundled and they're smaller versus being bigger. Um, also ensuring that they are community serving businesses and nonprofits selected to be developers or take lead roles on projects. They also said that they want to see more insurance of lower AMIs in the zero to 50% rate. They have also seen a, a similar mismatch in more low income persons wanting, needing housing. However, we're having um, our affordable housing bans much higher than the local um, need. So if you want to put that in context, the AMI for, or the average income for a black family in San Francisco ranges around 30 to 40K per year. Um, that is way lower than the 50% AMI, and in a lot of our housing developments that we do through OCII, it ranges, a lot of the units typically are in the 70% and above AMI, so it totally puts them out of the possibility of even getting an affordable housing. And what that also does to our community is a disservice because it puts out the narrative that affordable houses is there and it's not affordable to those who need it the most. Um, also, they also shared that RFQs um, should have clear guidance for scoring that support community engagement and true CBDCs being advantaged rather than disadvantaged. Um, what that looks like um, is in terms of a lot of times RFQs are set up in the traditional model in the sense that they're geared towards larger developers who have tons of experience, et cetera, and the minimum requirements are so prohibitive that you must get one of those larger developers to be a sponsor on your project, even if you're a community-based organization who has experience in building affordable housing. Um, they don't qualify, they don't meet the minimum requirements, which also means that then the community-based partners also are selected by these larger developers who have more leverage as projects go along. And that impacts the entire project because at some point um, the CBDCs as well as the nonprofit organizations and the SBEs who partner on the project, they have less agency and what the final project looks like. So when there becomes times where negotiations happen, their needs are not met and they have to just um, accept whatever the larger developer wants to do that may impact financing just so that they can say they completed the project. Um, and that also leads to us not getting the preferred community-based outcomes that we say we want in the end. Um, they also said that they would also like to see that we ensure that there's racial equity framework and all levels of all projects. Um, they also said that they'd like to see um, there be more assistance with community service serving businesses and nonprofits on their cost of tenant improvements. Cur current developments are typically only extended for warm shell build outs to community serving nonprofits and they don't actually allow um, you know, enough um, funding or resourcing for retail um, or mom and pop businesses that still have a need, huge need for tenant improvement costs. Um, one of the examples of that is um, when we're building out um, spaces, um, I know I heard from Mercy Housing as well as some of the other developers and um, 
the Mission Bay projects, it was very hard for them to lease up the small business retail spaces, even in our affordable housing spaces, because a lot of the spaces were not built with the intention of what businesses would go in there. And so trying to get a small business to either be in a space that's too big to where they could properly manage, or it didn't have the proper infrastructure, so like a coffee shop or even a restaurant. A restaurant requires about $150,000 initial kind of um, investment just to put a hood in there, not including the floor drains and all of the other things that need to happen within a restaurant infrastructure. So they'd like us to look at um, building into things that there's more flexibility, more resources, more findings for that um, as we're thinking of our developments. Um, Another thing that they also um, commented on was also how um, some of our projects could um, potentially use other types of financing models or look at other types of capital um, for projects in a more favorable way instead of only looking at traditional forms of capital to fund these development projects. Um, and then so that was my collection of things being from nonprofits. And then myself, um, I really see this moment of time as an opportunity for collaboration, um, shared resources, funding, and improved outcomes with MOHCD in the mayor's office. I'm gonna point to two things that recently happened that kind of um, highlight that. Um, just this past week and last week, there were several um, press releases by the mayor's office. Um, one recently was where she announced today there was $60 million in federal tax credits to support nonprofits and businesses in disadvantaged communities um, through the new market rate tax credits. Um, over the last 13 years, the mayor's office has been able to leverage $163.6 million in federal new market tax credit dollars to reinvest in local communities and nonprofits um, are t typically tasked with helping to fund these projects in substantial and sustainable community benefits in low-income San Francisco neighborhoods. Um, being that the initial action that created the San Francisco Redevelopment Agency was a HUD action, I believe there is advocacy that we can do around that to um, potentially lobby um, with our um, federal um, representatives, Nancy Pelosi, as well as the mayor's office and the governor to get funding um, in the initial documents under redevelopment, HUD was supposed to pay one third of the costs of redevelopment. And so I believe we should start holding them accountable for that one third of that money. We've been pretty much building this with city money and tax, tax funding, state tax funding, and it's time for the federal government to also be um, responsible for the harm that was caused to um, various communities throughout San Francisco due to redevelopment's actions. Um, also, MOHCD recently also um, released another press release about how they were able to house 270 out of the 500 families in Chinatown's SROs into permanent family housing. The fact that they were able to do that and have been unsuccessful in COP um, is kind of eye-opening to me. Um, especially considering that this is something that people have been lobbying for decades. And so I'd like to see um, what are the wins, or hear from MOHCD, what were the wins that allowed them to make such a substantial um, 
or over 50, house over 55% of the people that they wanted to house. And um, I just wanted to end that with saying that um, I also did some kind of research on initial actions taken by redevelopment um, before we became what we are now, OCII, as a successor agency. And I do believe these are still part of our enforceable obligations and ways in which we can actually help the community partner on certain projects or smaller site projects like Commissioner Tampton said. There used to be a COP developers, so there was a developer certificate of preference that was given to the community um, where the community actually developed projects and that's how we got a bunch of the co-op housing throughout San Francisco where um, a majority of the black um, residents in San Francisco have been able to sustain themselves um, in Freedom West and the Bayview Hill area and co-op housing as being another model of affordable housing that we don't typically fund in the city anymore, but it has been a way to prevent gentrification or removal and sustain families for generations in the city. And so in what ways we can develop this policy to also prioritize or incentivize co-op housing would be great because we know that that is actually a housing stabilizer in the city. Um, and then, um, that's it for me. Sorry if it's really long, but I really think that this is a moment in time where we really need to categorically um, do a 180 when we're thinking about this policy because this is 6,000 units that are specifically supposed to be for people who were displaced. And um, if any other commissioners or Director Koslowski have any comments? I'll wait to see if any other commissioners have any other feedback. Yeah. Would just only say um, thank you for that lengthy um, wait, dissertation. <laughs> but um, your comments, um, much of the same that I get in our meetings and from our churches and um, Dr. Brown, uh, Amos Brown. Um, so it, it's, it goes from our leadership all the way down to our lay people in the community. And it has been um, encouraging, but a discouraging letdown uh, with the process and the policies and the way things are going. Um, and we do need not more discussions, but actions that will help to change and correct things. I feel like we need to look at Dr. King, you know, and um, really understand when um, that trust and faith, when it's broken, you know, um, it, it just leaves a mountain of despair. But we could be the stones of hope to really go into serious actionary things that would make a difference and a change because how many years has this been an issue and just a multitude of issues around it. So what are we doing uh, to make a change and at the same time 
we watch others just thrive and benefit with um and it's like what are we not doing or what are we not saying are what are we missing you know there's something that can be done to make this a lot different better and successful you know for families so that's uh, my little put i don't think it needs a whole lot of anything else that from me but actions upon um solutions is what we need thank you chair for addressing those issues i think growing up in the city i've i've always heard and uh i i agree with commissioner scott where action is required now um enough of the talks and more action and yes we need more families to stay in san francisco a lot of my friends moved out i'm one of the few that have stayed and somehow making it happen that's my motto i'm making it happen in this city so a lot of us work hard we hustle out there to stay in the city that we love so much and i just like everyone else deserves to stay in the city you know everyone all groups so i applaud for that applaud you for that lengthy statement and comments and feedback from the community from the people and they need to be heard thank you for that thank you thank you this is a great discussion um you know the purpose of Ms. Camello's, Calamello's uh, presentation was to highlight where we were in process and you know, this, we started here, well first at the Certificate of Preference subcommittee but then here at the commission to begin the listening. We've heard a lot of different ideas, uh, some of which we had heard before uh, prior to the COP meeting but also during that COP meeting. Um, and what we committed to was to lay out the different suggestions, see where those requirements come from and do what I'm calling a crosswalk to just kind of explain where we are. That's, for me, the first step in, a, in trying to determine what the next step is. Um, other thing I want to mention is just that it would, a lot of this implementation of any of this would require not only the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development, but the Mayor's Office proper, uh, because it would involve federal government, state government, state legislation, all those sorts of things. Um, and so, you know, looking through the list provided by the COP committee, hearing some of the things, um, some of which you've heard before. I see some near-term opportunities for process improvements, but also some longer-term things that may or may not be feasible, we don't know. Um, but we can you know, commit to looking at them uh, in the way that we can. We're obviously limited in terms of our small but mighty staff. Um, but we can um, turn to some of our partners, philanthropy, for example, to maybe fund this so-called economic study things like that we're happy to participate in conversations around that um, and so I just want to offer that up as partnership in this discussion um, trying to continue to deliver the affordable housing that we have on deck um, and make adjustments along the way where possible um, and happy to begin the next step with the CACs which is over, over the next two weeks and bring out bring excuse me bring back what we've heard at that point um, to the Commission if that works 
And I'd like to definitely th thank Thor as well as our general counsel Morales for um, supporting the COP committee through a lot of these discussions and being a listening ear and providing us the opportunity to have these um, for the community to weigh in and for us to throw out different things. I think that just in the COP committees itself, we did make monumental change. We got the COP descendancy law with the help of um, um, General Counsel Morales and our previous executive director and the mayor's office and um, David Chu's office. So it's not that we're not trying to make progress. I would just like to see something more comprehensive. And so as much as ways that we can share and work together as a community with all these partners so we can really come up with a real um, more definitive policy and really look at it as saying, okay, if we're changing this policy, this is the outcome we should have from this policy change. And being able to map those things, not just look at policy as being some kind of general term where we set parameters of what may be acceptable, what may, may not be acceptable. Let's be more intentional about how we set the policy, that if we're setting a policy in this way, this is the specific outcome we're trying to get out of that. And um, i just like to end with just saying that you know, at the crux of all of this is really um, finding those COP holders. And so I really would like to see um, an RFP coming before our commission in November to outline how we are going to use the most robust process possible. Um, again, I'm definitely advocating for genealogy to quickly find um, the over 20,000 COP holders that we know are out there. Um, we've found only a 1,000. Um, and for us to be an agency that's been around as long as we have and have that um, number is kind of shocking of the ones that we have found. And I know that we've defined and found out from MOHCD, part of that issue is that some of their records are inaccurate and missing key data. Um, and you know, I also wanna thank NCLF for the work that they did. Um, they did a lot of um, work talking one-on-one -on -one to COP holders and identifying other family members who were left out of the initial, um, I guess, the records um, of who was in the household. Um, however, um, I do feel that there is a more efficient process and a faster process to identify, find, and issue those COP holders, COP certificates to those holders. And I think that could also help us in our marketing and help us identify people faster so that we, it's not just on the onus of us as the organization or the leaders in this organization to kind of keep driving things, we would get a larger retention and people who are actually giving us regular feedback and taking advantage of the housing opportunities. Um, because we are talking about 6,000 units and if there's 20,000 that we know of, Imagine if there's another 20,000 out there and if we're building for the next 30 years, we're talking about descendants and that's a multiplier effect. So there's definitely going to be enough people out there that are gonna want those housing opportunities. Um, and then the kind of last part that I'd like to talk about and maybe it doesn't get dressed in this policy and maybe it comes somewhere else, but I'd really like our commission to also um, look at what ways can we um, do an expansion of the COP program. Not in the sense of specifically around descendants, but um, how do we still um, really um, support those other um, project areas who did not have a COP certificate um, because they didn't ask for one, but we know that now as an agency that had they been offered that opportunity, 
that might have saved their community as well. And when I think about that, I think specifically of the Soma Filipinas, um, who were also displaced out of Soma, and black community and Latino community in the Soma, who were also displaced due to redevelopment actions who were never offered a COP certificate. And so I'd really like us to kind of put our heads around um, how we can support that as a next step once we get through this um, policy for the 6,000 replacement units. Um, if there's no other questions or concerns, I will. Oh, yes, go ahead. Thank you. Um, I just really wanted to encourage um, Director Kozlowski to, to think big on this one. You know, I'm hearing things like, oh, there's additional process. We've got to bring in, you know, different levels of government. We have a small but mighty staff. Like, now's the time to think, think big and go big uh, and to not get too bogged down by, by process. You know, I think that we have the capacity within the budget to hire some heads. We, you know, have the, the funding to go. 2024 is really right around the corner uh, in terms of accessing uh, these these funds when it does go into effect. What can we do now to hit the ground running to get these this, these bonds out the door and the dollars in hand? Um, you know, I think it's a it's a rare opportunity in government to be kind of handed uh, such an incredible opportunity to make an impactful change. Uh, and and I you know to maybe summarize what I'm hearing from my fellow commissioners, like we want action and we want fast action. Uh, so anything that, you know, you as uh, the, the leader of this organization can do to push that change and vision forward quickly uh, will be really uh, appreciated. And, you know, you definitely have my support uh, to make sure that you have the resources needed uh, in order to hit the ground running and, and to move fast. Thank you. Great. Thank you. And I want to open it up for General Counsel Morales. I, I, <clears throat> I just wanted to clarify um, President Brackett's point about <clears throat> the certificate population. Uh, one doesn't need a certificate to be eligible for the preference. The state law, both for the original displacees as well as for descendants, just requires that you be either the displacee or uh, a relative of a person displaced. So you don't need a certificate. Uh, and all of our programs flow from that state authorization for the preference. So I, certainly there needs to be more outreach to the community to explain that, but that preference already exists. And we would, MOCD as well as the agency are bound to provide that to all persons who were displaced by redevelopment. Thank you for that, Jim. Um, while we understand that that's the sentiment of the law, that's not how it's been applied on MOHCD's behalf. And so that's what the community has been upset about. We understand that as OCII, and that's what we've been advocating for MOHCD to do, but that has not translated into its processes. And so, you know, one of the things that we discussed with Maria Benjamin was hiring more staff so that they can go through the actual COP applications, because they're taking it as you need to apply to get the certificate. We're not just issuing it to you. Like how you just said, technically if they qualify, they should just get it. That's not happening. They're actually being asked to apply and to provide proof that they qualify. And so it's that process that is being inhibitive and prohibitive to members of the COP universe. And what also translates into community talking about this and saying, well, I qualify, but I got denied, so try your luck if you want to, but they're probably going to deny you too, or 
you know, also not getting a, res a quick response, you know. There were, Maria said in one of our meetings, she was on a, what was it, six or eight week backlog for applications, and they only had one person. And it wasn't her, she was on the approval side. So imagine the time it takes from someone to apply, to qualify, and now sh they're waiting another eight weeks to get approved after they're being told they are approved. And then there were, as in our reports, 50% of the people who applied for a certificate of preference were denied because they didn't have a specific document that was recognized by the agency. So what we're seeing is there's a mismatch in the outcomes. And we have to do something at the policy level to enforce that with MOHCD because it's not happening. So that's what I'd like to see. We need to start building it into the policy so then it's enforceable by MOHCD. Uh, if that's all for the discussion for this item, I'd like to hand it back over for um, our Madam Secretary to call the next item. The next order of business is item six, public comment on non-agenda items. Madam Chair. Please call for public comment. At this time, members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item, on again, this is, these are for the non-agenda items. Please call 415-655-0001, enter access code 2660308, 8590 followed by the pound sign then pound sign again to enter the call please press star then three to be placed in the queue if you're already listening to us by phone please press star three if you would like to provide public comment and wait for your turn to get called at this time we'd like to invite mr james to provide your comment thank you when i filled out the card i really didn't have anything to say <laughs> but i want to thank Commissioner Brackett for giving our report from the OC uh, committee uh, and for Jim Morales' report on the things about the certificate that I didn't know anything about. For the last 50 years, as I served around redevelopment before I came to work with redevelopment, but watching redevelopment during the process and destroying Soma, uh, South Park. I used to work for the Veteran Administration before I, I came here. And I've seen all that be demolished. But when redevelopment came to, to Hunters Point, and I know it's, it's it, when it came to Hunters Point, we surrounded the building with Justin Herman and Mary Alioto. And we demanded with hair scarves on our head that we have a preference to come back to our community. That's how we got the certificate of preference, okay? Like you said about Soma, all the Asians that was down there, the blacks that was down there in Soma, they didn't get no certificate, but they were destroyed by the redevelopment agency. And I think they, and I've been bringing this up for 50 years, and they should be entitled to have a preference for housing, because a lot of those peoples were making less money than I was making back then working for the Veteran Administration. And I think I was making, well, I, it was low. It was under $5. But they were moved out of their homes. And, and the families was five, six, ten people in a house that was re relocated, you know. But 
I just want to commend you, Commissioner Blackett, for giving our report. I know you guys wouldn't allow me to talk that long. And one, one thing I want to say, when, we, when I first started coming to the redevelopment commission meetings, the commission meeting didn't look nothing, nothing like you guys. Nothing like you guys. Okay, Beauregard was our, and you can look back to the record who Beauregard was. He was the attorney, what have you. And we had to turn over his desk a couple of times uh, also to make him hear what the community was saying. And I just want to let you guys know how much I appreciate what you guys are doing for the betterment of this whole city and county of San Francisco, not just Hunters Point or Western Edition or Soma, but for the whole entire city and county of San Francisco. And I just really want to appreciate each and every one of you. And uh, uh, Dog Patch has always been a part of our community. I heard you say that the last time, but I walked and partied in Dog Patch in many young days of my life. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. James. And last call for anyone joining by phone. If you'd like to provide public comment, please press star three. Madam Chair, we do, no, uh, we do not have any members of the public wishing to comment on this item. I will close public comment and move it over to my fellow commissioners if you'd like to um, talk about a non-agenda item. Okay. Madam Chair, can you please call the next item? The next order of business is item seven, report of the chair. Madam Chair? I have no report to give today. Next order of business is item eight, report of the executive director, Director Koslovsky. Thank you, Madam Secretary. Um, I just have one item. Uh, it doesn't have to be brief, but it may seem brief, but it's uh, super important. I want to acknowledge our very own Commissioner, Dr. Carolyn Ransom Scott who has been the recipient in September of a Presidential Lifetime Achievement Award for 40 years in service in community development, engagement, and leadership in service of affordable housing, advocacy, philanthropy. And she also is recognized for her work in black excellence for inventors of the bookmark to keepsake series that are available uh, here at OCAI. And uh, this project highlights the uh, contributions of black African-American inventors uh, to this nation, both sociologic, social, socially and economically. Um, these bookmarks have been placed at the San Francisco Public Library. They're in, she, through her advocacy, she got them throughout the school, I believe, in the school district in the city. Um, and Oscar James had brought this up, I think, three months ago when this first was happening. Uh, but she's been modest and hasn't spoke on it, but she, uh, we want to honor her here on behalf of the commission, on behalf of OCII, and acknowledge your achievement. Thank you. And that concludes my report. Thank you. Commissioners, do you have any questions or comments regarding the executive director's report? We are not in the public schools yet, but after 250 years, um, the exhibit and the bookmarks are in every San Francisco public library and no other city or state in the nation has put our information 
into a place of learning like this and uh, for the president and vice president to acknowledge it and Stanford University is working with me and so many others of Washington DC news journalists I am just humbled uh, for the African-American nation that finally after 250 years there's an acknowledgement and things are moving so we're working with to make sure doesn't get hidden again um, and so thank you for that thank you so much OCII Madam Secretary, can you please call the next item? The next order of business is item nine, commissioners' questions and matters. Madam Chair. Commissioners, do you have any additional um, questions or matters that you would like to discuss today? No. Madam Secretary, please call the next item. Next order of business is item 10, closed session. There are no closed session items. Next order of business is item 11, adjournment. Madam Chair. Fellow commissioners, I'll need a motion to um, and a second to adjourn this meeting. Madam Chair, I move that the meeting be adjourned. And I second. <laughs> the meeting is being adjourned at 3.47 p.m. 